All right, we are uh, today. We are beginning Genesis chapter thirty-nine, and this is a milestone lesson. You may not realize it, but this is a milestone lesson because this is lesson one hundred <laughs> in our study of Genesis. <laughs> so we've been going for a while in Genesis, uh, but. Uh, and as you can see from the syllabus I just handed out, we've got a ways to go, <laughs> a ways to go yet. Uh, but uh, but it seems to me that it's being profitable, so uh, uh, I don't make any apologies for taking three years to get through the book of Genesis. But uh, last uh, last week we finished chapter 38, which was a chapter that it actually took us several weeks to do because I was gone for a couple weeks. Uh, so, uh, and today we pick up uh, we pick up the story in chapter 39. You'll remember that in chapter 37 we began the story of uh, Joseph, and the story of Joseph pretty much uh, chapter 37 was devoted to his uh, the story of his life before he was taken down to Egypt, and of course his being sold into slavery by his brothers uh, there at Dotham. Uh Then we have the kind of the, some people think of it as an interruption. It's not really an interruption of the story. It's more of a, it's more of a parenthetical part of the story in which we kind of revert back and we look at the story of Judah and Tamar. And that's what we looked at in chapter 38. And, uh, and we talked about why that story is important, why it's kind of inserted right into the context of the Joseph story. And uh, we'll review a little bit of that here in just a minute. And uh, so we looked at the story of Tamar and Judah, and now we're going to revert back to the story of Joseph and pick up the story of Joseph uh, as he arrives in Egypt. So that's where we are. Um, And uh, before we read the passage for today and uh, talk about uh, the things we want to talk about today, let's go back and glance down through chapter 38, particularly uh, last week we covered verses uh, 20 through... Uh, 30. Uh, so look down through that and, and kind of refresh your mind and tell me what are some of the things we have talked about in this story of Judah and Tamar that stick out to you or that seem important to you. Yeah, she uh, she wasn't going to just let him get away with uh, get away with things. Here was she. She had a plan. Now we don't know exactly what her plan was. We don't know if her plan was as the way things actually unfolded, or or if she just took the opportunity as she saw it presented. But she was clearly determined that she was not going to let Judah uh, just completely abandon her and neglect her his responsibilities to her. What else? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say it's a it's a pretty elaborate plan. So if, in fact, she did have it planned out, she had she had things pretty well figured. And uh, uh, most things that I plan in that much detail don't materialize that way, which is one of the reasons why I think maybe uh, she was uh, it wasn't in, entirely her plan. But but. But she certainly knew him well enough to even even if it wasn't her plan, she certainly had him pretty well figured out. Yeah. Why is this story here? Okay. Okay. And so one crucial thing is to explain to us the lineage and how how the lineage of the Messiah is uh, is carried forward. And so that, of course, is part of the part of the importance of the lesson. Uh, why is it here? Why is it why is it put right here in the middle of the story of Joseph? I mean, it seems like a complete interruption to the story of Joseph, doesn't it? Well, this happens concurrent with the time that Joseph is traded out to the. Uh, or go, go down to in the slavery. So it's during that same time period, and it shows uh, 
life, they were separated. Uh, they were forced to be separate. And, uh, I've been thinking you made the application here. This was several weeks ago. Made the application for that, how it applies in our own lives. And uh, to me, that is a constant, ongoing struggle in the Christian life to be in the world but not part of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we can see, you know, knowing how difficult it is for us when we have the Spirit. These guys who are, you know, Judah, you don't know, it's you know, hard to tell spirit condition, how hard it is for him and all those guys, they just got sucked right into the world. Yeah. So this explains to us why God had to pull them away and get them out into a different land where they would not be accepted. Yeah. could be separate. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it tells us how important that is to God. <laughs> you know, that, that He would take His people and take them down to Egypt and subject them to slavery for 400 years just to preserve them from becoming indistinct from the world. It shows us how important this issue of separation from the world really is for the people of God. What else? <clears throat> Jim, mentioned, <clears throat> Jim mentioned that these things in chapter 38 happen concurrent with the things that we're going to be studying from chapter 39 up through about chapter 45. Okay, So one of the things we need to remember about chapter 38, sometimes when we read these things, we sit down and we read a chapter in a few minutes and we forget to think about the time that that represents. And chapter 38 actually represents a period of about 22 years. Okay, So the, the events that unfold in chapter 38, although they appear to us to happen quite quickly, when you stop and think about it and realize that children are being born and raised and getting married and then having their own children, we realize that this is actually happening, happening over a significant period of time. So what's happening here in the life of Judah over, over a period of 20-some years is concurrent with what's happening in the life of Jacob, or excuse me, of Joseph over that same 22-year period of time. And so one of the reasons that the passage about Judah and Tamar is here is so that as we get into the story of Joseph, we can compare the two. We can compare and contrast Judah uh, how Judah handles his situation as opposed to how Joseph handles his situation. So there's some interesting parallels and, and contrast there between Judah and Joseph that we'll try to pick up as we go through the story. <clears throat> well, let's go on then and pick it up with uh, uh, chapter 39, uh, beginning in verse 1. And this again, as I said, is now we are reverting back to uh, to the story as we left it off at the end of 37. And if you'll just flip back uh, a page to chapter 37 for a second, you'll notice that in verse uh, 36 of chapter 37, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And that's where we left the story of Joseph. Now we pick it up again and the narrator repeats that same uh, that same event in the first verse of chapter 39 when he says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about from the time that he, became, that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, uh, and with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph 
And she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Okay? Well, it's a very familiar story. Uh, and we talk about it and I refer to it and will refer to it over and over again over the next many weeks as the story of Joseph. But it really is not so much the story of Joseph as it is the story of God's faithfulness to His promise. One of the things that's interesting in, uh, is that in, in these ten verses that we read this morning, that five times God is referred to by the name Yahweh. Okay? Uh, I don't know if you noticed that, but over and over again in our translations, of course, it uses the word Lord with the all capital letters. Uh, so, for example, in verse 2, it says the Lord was with Joseph. Uh, and in verse 3, it says that his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper, etc., etc. So five times the word, the name Yahweh is used in these five or in these ten verses. In the rest of the entire book of Genesis, it's only used three times. Okay. Now, what is the significance of the name Yahweh? What's being, when, when Scripture uses Yahweh as an identification for God, what is the significance of that? What's it referring to? <laughs> we have actually covered this before. <laughs> Yahweh is the name that God uses when He's when he's referring to his personal relationship with Israel. Okay? So the point of the name Yahweh is it's representative of the covenant God, the, God, the covenant God of Israel. Okay? The God who has entered into covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's descendants. Okay? So, so when we see the name Yahweh used in Scripture or the, or the word Lord as it's translated and written in your text here. If it's in all capital letters, it's, it's uh, referring to the Hebrew word Yahweh. If it's a capital L and small O-R-D, it's referring to the uh, Hebrew word Adonai, which is another name for God. But when you see it in the all caps form that you see it in your translation here, it's referring to the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Okay. So, what's significant here to me in this passage is that five times he uses the name Yahweh to refer to this God that is dealing with Joseph and dealing with, with Potiphar and blessing Potiphar's house. Okay? So, it is, so, it is this covenant-keeping God. And, and so, one of the things that's, that, that jumps out to us in this passage when we see that and when we take note of that one of the things that jumps out to us in this passage is this passage is about God's covenant with Israel. And this passage is about God keeping His covenant promises to Israel and His covenant promises to Abraham. And so this story, even though the story of Joseph is 12 chapters long and embraces uh, uh, virtually as much of the book of Genesis as does the story of Abraham. So the story of Abraham and the story of Joseph combined take up 50% of the book of Genesis. Okay, So these two stories, Abraham's story and Joseph's story, are both tremendously important stories as we can see by the amount of text, if you will, that the Holy Spirit devotes to them. All right, And so... so God spends 12 chapters talking about Abraham and talking about his covenant with Abraham and how he's dealing with Abraham. And then he spends 12 chapters talking about Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. 
Okay? And all the things that Joseph goes through and all the things that Joseph experiences. But what God is doing in that is He is revealing to us how He is in keeping His covenant with Abraham. And so as we read the story of Joseph, and it's a, as I say, it's a wonderful story. It's full of drama. It's full of pathos and emotion and sorrow and joy. And it's just, you know, it is, in fact, as I've said before, I think my favorite story in all of Scripture. I love the story of Joseph. I can relate to the story of Joseph. And it's a precious story. But it is not primarily a story about Joseph. It's a story about God. It's a story about the faithfulness of God. It's a story about the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. And we see it from the very outset of the story here as we pick it up in chapter 39. Now, in chapter 37, it wasn't looking so much that way for Joseph, was it? Things were not looking so good for Joseph. And when we talked about chapter 37, our last chapter, our last study in, the, in chapter 37, we backed away a little bit and kind of backed off in the chapter and looked at it from a, from a holistic perspective. Uh, perspective, if you will, and we talked about all the evil that happens in chapter 37. I don't know if you remember uh, our study uh, at that point, but I, I continually, we went through and we looked at each evil event that happens in chapter 37, and after each one of I asked you, does God still love Joseph? Does God love Joseph? Does God love Joseph? As each one of these subsequent evil things happen in his life, did God love Joseph? Did he care for him? Okay. Well, we get the answer to that, of course, in chapter 39. But I want you to notice in, in chapter 39, in verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now let me ask you, what in that verse, verse 1, what thing is emphasized? What is repeated twice in that verse? He's been taken down there, okay? Now, as we talk about this part of the story of Joseph, things are going to look pretty good. Okay, things are going to look pretty good for Joseph. We're going to talk about his success. We're going to talk about the trust that's instilled in him. Uh, you know, things things are going to or look in some ways pretty good for us. But what is interesting to me is how the narrator, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here wants to imprint in our mind as we're going to begin to to look at Joseph and find out about all these good things that he does and how successful he is and. And, and, and how he's, everything he touches turns to gold. He's got the Midas touch, so to speak, okay, which his master sees and his master then begins to utilize that. Uh, as we study all that, the narrator wants to make sure that we don't forget Joseph's real circumstance. He is here against his will. He has been taken down here. If, if Joseph had his brothers at any moment in the years that pass in, as he is in Potiphar's house, and we don't know exactly how many years that was, but however many years he was in Potiphar's house before he ended up in prison, and during all those years, at any point, don't let there be any doubt in your mind, if Joseph could have, he would have gone back home. Don't ever forget that. Joseph didn't want to be here. He was taken down here against his will. He is a slave. And the, the other way that is emphasized to us in the text is, uh, is, an is kind of an interesting thing to me. Who bought him? When he gets down to Egypt, who bought him? Who was named... <laughs> Potiphar, okay? So Potiphar bought him. And we are introduced to Potiphar both at the end of chapter 37 and at the first part of chapter 38. But I want you to notice that through the entire rest of the story, Potiphar's name is not mentioned. How is he referred to from this point forward? His master, okay? And he's referred to many times. It struck me yesterday as I was thinking through this and and meditating on this passage, and I was thinking, he keeps calling him his master, his master, his master. He never calls him Potiphar again. Now, why does the narrator do that? We know his name. 
But it's as if the narrator, in addition to emphasizing to us by twice telling us that Joseph was taken down to Egypt, that he keeps telling us that his relationship with this guy is this guy is his master. He is a slave. Okay? And, and in spite of all the good things that we, we're going to see and all the kind of positive things we're going to see about Joseph, it says the narrator wants to tell us, don't you forget where Joseph is and why he's there and how he's there and what he thinks about it. Joseph is a slave. Joseph is in, a, in, in this man's house. This man is his master. He's not simply his employee. He can't just simply decide when things get a little tough, the going gets a little tough, he can't just decide to, to uh, hand in his resignation and go hire himself out to some other Egyptian official. He can't do that. That's not his choice. Okay. So that's, that's something that it seems to me that the narrator is trying to emphasize to us in the passage so that we don't lose sight of that in the context of everything else that we're going to talk about. Okay? And I think that's important for us to consider. Now, in verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of, his, uh, of the Egyptian. Uh, and uh, so he starts off right away by telling us that the Lord was with Joseph. Now, it's very easy for us to just kind of read past that. Not stop and think about, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord was with Joseph? You see, this, this idea of the presence of God with His people is a significant theme all the way through Scripture, isn't it? We see it over and over again. We saw it with, remember when, when uh, Jacob... Uh, stops on his way to Paden Aaron and he spends the night in that kind of random place that becomes later in our understanding Bethel. And, and he has this dream and the Lord, uh, he has this dream of the ladder and the angels going up and down and that sort of thing. And, and when Jacob wakes up in the morning, what does he say? Okay, he says, the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. But one of the things that God promises in there at Bethel is that I will be with you. Now, that's, that's a pretty profound promise, isn't it? Think about who's talking here. This is, the, this is the God who dwells in unapproachable light. Who rules over all things who holds all things together by the word of His power, by whom and for whom all things were created. And this God is saying to Jacob, everywhere you walk, I'm going to be by your side. Well, that was pretty significant to Jacob. And he took that as a pretty significant promise from God. And as he moves forward in his life, we see that, that God is with him everywhere he goes. And, and we see that manifested in certain ways in the life of Jacob. And then, of course, we're going to see it here in the life of Joseph. But, but this idea of the presence of God carries all the way forward into the New Testament too, doesn't it? In fact, the idea of God's presence becomes even more outstanding, more in the forefront, if you will, in the New Testament than it does in the Old Testament. How is that? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So, so in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go away. And I know that makes you kind of sad, but, if I don't, but, but I have to go away because when I go away, then the Holy Spirit can come. And, and so He promises the Holy Spirit. He says in Matthew chapter 18, He says, where two or three are gathered, you, uh, gathered together, there I am in that place with you. He says in, in Matthew chapter 28, He says, as far as the entire future is concerned, He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have this tremendous promise of the presence of God with us and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with us. And we just so oftentimes, maybe I'm, maybe I'm projecting here, but I know it's true in my own life and maybe it is in your life as well. So oftentimes we just kind of just take that for granted. But tomorrow morning when you get up 
and, and, and you go there in the bathroom and you brush your teeth. I hope you brush your teeth in the morning. You go in the bathroom and you brush your teeth and you get dressed and you go out there and you get in your car and you turn the ignition on and you back your car out of the driveway. Who is with you? The God of all creation is riding out in that driveway with you. And as you drive off to work, you go off or whatever you do tomorrow and you go off and you do the things, you have with you the presence of the Almighty God. Why is it that, that, that we're so indifferent to that? Why is it that that doesn't just absolutely blow us away every day when we get up? And, and we just... We just live our lives so oftentimes oblivious to the fact that God is with us. And all that that implies and all that that entails, well, the question is, what does that imply? What does that entail? What did the presence of God with Joseph look like in the life of Joseph? Okay. <laughs> okay. The first thing it says is that he was successful. Now I want to ask you: Does having the presence of God in our life always mean that we'll be successful? <laughs> okay. We're going to think about this thing about Joseph's success and what that meant. But, but that's clearly one thing that the passage tells us, doesn't it? That God's presence with Joseph was associated with, or in Joseph's life at least, manifested itself in his success, right? Okay. How else does the presence of God manifest itself in the life of Joseph? Okay. He has this remarkable integrity, okay? Uh, what else? The master, even though he worships seven God, recognizes that the Lord is Okay. The presence of God with his life is obvious to his master. Okay. And so his master puts him in charge of his house and all of his possessions. And, and, and then it's kind of successive promotion that goes on there, apparently, by the way that the text is written. Uh, what else? The overflow to just the whole situation. Okay. So, the result of God's presence with Joseph and the success that Joseph enjoys results in blessing. Notice it says blessing twice. It says the Lord blessed the house of Potiphar or his master's house. It never, as I said, never uses Potiphar's name again. It always calls him his master. His master says, God blessed his master. Okay? So his master's house is blessed, both in the house and in the field. Everything is blessed. Okay? How else does the presence of God manifest itself? Okay. 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 What else? How about the fact that he's even a slave in Egypt? Now, we don't think about that, do we? But remember, we've already talked about this passage. We jumped ahead. Remember how Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? Remember that? So God's presence with Joseph, you know, immediately we jump to all these positive things. Oh, he's successful and he's blessing. You know, but God's presence with Joseph also means that Joseph's going to be a slave in Egypt. Now, one of the things that, remember, what we stress all the way through Genesis, and, and, and this is true about the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is that they are written while the children of Israel are in the wilderness, right? This is before they've gone into promise. So this is post-Sinai, pre-Canaan, okay, for the people of Israel. That's when they first opened these books and read them. These were, these were, this is when these things were written, okay. And the story of Joseph serves, 
interestingly enough, serves as a remarkable parallel for the experience of Israel. Joseph goes down to Egypt. He ends up a slave in Egypt. He gets mightily delivered out of Egypt. Okay, this is a Joseph's experience is, is in some ways a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to the whole nation of Israel, who go down to Egypt, end up in slavery in Egypt, and then ultimately are delivered out of Egypt by God's mighty hand. Okay, so so there's this interesting parallel that's going on between the life of Joseph and the experience of Israel many many years later. Now. It is helpful then for Israel to understand because as Israel goes through the wilderness, how do they know where to go? The cloud and the, uh, the cloud and the fire, right? The pillar cloud and the pillar and the cloud, the pillar of, uh, of smoke and the and the pillar of fire. What are they? They are God's presence. Okay, so Israel has this manifestation of the presence of God as they go through the wilderness. How long did they spend in the wilderness? Forty years. Why did they spend forty years in the wilderness? Because they didn't obey God. And what was happening during that forty years? The first generation was dying off. That's also what the presence of God looks like. In fact, I would suggest to you that chapter 38 is also a picture of what the presence of God looks like. Rick, the the difficulty is it seems that this is happening in spite of Joseph being a slave, not caused or allowed by well, we would have to say it's allowed by God. We would almost you're implying it is caused by God, and I think you're probably right. But on the other hand, we I tend to think this can't be a good thing, and, and so God's with him in spite of the fact that he's a slave, or in spite of the fact that this bad thing happened. Uh, yes, and I would not say that God caused it, because I don't believe God causes evil, and slavery is clearly evil. Right. But what Joseph does say later is, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and this goes back to the whole thing that we talked about, about this issue of, of evil, it, is that God does not merely just set evil aside and replace it with good, but that God actually somehow takes evil that is still evil and somehow transforms it so that it has good results. Okay? So that... So that all that his brothers did to him in selling him into slavery, that was evil. They were evil, their intentions were evil, and the result was evil. It was an evil thing. But Joseph said God intended to use that for good. And the point that I made when we were talking about that is that I believe that that's true about all evil. Both natural and moral evil since the beginning, since the fall. Well, here's the problem I have with I understand what you said, and I agree with you. But when it comes to practical living, I, it still doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, that's why we need to work through this lesson. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Um, so what I'm trying to stress here is that when we read verse 2, we might jump to the conclusion, ah, the presence of God, that means success. And then, of course, immediately we define success the way we define success today rather than the way the Lord exemplifies Joseph's true success here. So we think of it in terms of how we think of success today. And so we just think, well, if God's present with me, I'm going to be successful. But what I'm trying to stress to you is that God is present with Joseph all through this 22-year period of time. And that for 13 years of that period of time, he's either a slave in Potiphar's house or he's in prison. And that, that God was present with Joseph at those times as well. As he was with Joseph when he was in his father's house and as he was with Joseph when he finally is sitting as the prime minister of Egypt. Okay. 
that it's very easy for us to think if God is present with me, then everything's going to look good in my life. But what I'm trying to stress comes out in this lesson here is that God is present with Joseph and he is successful, but I'm going to define that in just a minute. We're going to explore that. That that Joseph is successful, but that but that if we look at Joseph's life, as we look at him first being a slave and then in prison, as you and I look at him from a from a twenty first century American worldview we would not be inclined to say that his life manifests the presence of God, would we? And, and, I, and I mentioned uh, just, before, uh, uh, just before Jim raised his point, I mentioned Judah and Tamar because the promise of God to Abraham was that he would be present with him and with his descendants. And the promise that he gives to Jacob is that he would be present with him and with his descendants. And so what I want to tell you, what I want to suggest to you, is that God was not only present with Joseph. God was also present with Judah. Now that's troubling, isn't it? See, I asked you the question, what does the presence of God look like in the life of Joseph? Well, we know what it looks like in the life of Joseph. And we know that Joseph was an upright, righteous, faithful man. But here we have another descendant of the promise, Judah. And God's present with Judah, too. But Judah's doing a lot of things wrong. And so the presence of God looks a lot different in the life of Judah than it does in the life of Joseph. And yet we know that God is present with Judah because we see ultimately how God works through that whole situation, ultimately gives to Judah the descendants that he needs in spite of him doing everything wrong, gives to him the descendants he needs to carry on the messianic line. Not only that, but God is working in the life of Judah, as we'll see later in the story, God is working in the life of Judah to bring about repentance, which he ultimately does experience as we get into chapter 44. Okay. So, what I'm trying to say to you, among other things, is that the presence of God looks different in the lives of different people. And so, we want to avoid the trap of thinking, well, if God is present with that person and my life doesn't look like that person's life, is God present with me? How do I know God is present with me? How do you know God is present with you? There's two ways. One is He said it, so you have to believe it by faith. Okay, okay. And the other one I found that even during trials, kind of like Joseph, when God doesn't change the big picture, like, you know, He could say, well, if you're really looking, you take me back home, but He didn't do that. But even in the trials, He, you know, if He doesn't deliver the big trials, He still lets you know He's there. I mean, God has His footprints on Him. Yeah. And in Joseph's life, because we're talking about Joseph here primarily, not Judah, in Joseph's life it's that he is successful. Now, when we say somebody is successful today, what do we mean? Don't be hyper spiritual with me here. Just when we say somebody is successful today, what do we mean? Okay, they're materially successful. They've done well for themselves. They're comfortable. They're secure. They're healthy. They're happy, etc., etc., etc. Okay, that's that's how we think of success today. But we don't see any of that in Joseph's life, do we? Because all the wealth that Joseph generates goes to whom? Joseph. It goes to his master, doesn't it? Now, I'm sure that Joseph had some benefits. I, you know, he's living in the house. It's obviously probably a quite a luxurious place. So and he probably ate pretty good. He was probably dressed pretty good. But generally speaking, everything that Joseph generates goes to his master. And yet God says he is successful. And when Joseph is no longer in the service of his master, he's completely destitute. He's in prison, right? He doesn't get to carry any of that wealth with him. Okay. So, 
So Joseph's success is not material success. It's not the kind of success that we usually think about. Now, I want you to notice that it says about Joseph that he was successful. What does it say about Potiphar? What was Potiphar? If Joseph was successful, what was Potiphar? He was blessed. Do you notice that? It says Joseph was successful, but Potiphar was blessed. Now, first off, right off the bat, what's significant about that? What's the significant significant about Potiphar being blessed as a result of Joseph? In the covenant, it says that they would bless the other nation. That's right. The most the most dramatic, significant thing about this is this: God saying, "I am keeping my covenant." I made a covenant with Abraham that through him and through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And, and we've already seen it at work. We saw how Laban was blessed as a result of the presence of Jacob. Okay? Now we're seeing in the life of this pagan Egyptian who does not worship or serve Yahweh, he is being blessed because of the presence of a Yahweh worshiper in his house. Joseph's success was that he was a blessing to somebody else. That's what Joseph's success was. Joseph's success wasn't that his life was cushy and he had everything he wanted and he had the circumstances he wanted. The fact is, here is this man who has with him the presence of God, who finds himself in circumstances he does not want to be in, and given the chance, he would leave at the drop of a hat. But even though that is true about him, yet because he is faithful to God, and because he is an upright man, he lives righteously and lives for the benefit of the man who is oppressing him. And the result is, the man who is oppressing him is blessed. Now, that's not exactly the picture of the presence of God I wanted to see. You know, the picture of the presence of God I wanted to see was was that I'm blessed. Now, don't get me wrong here. Clearly, the Scripture is all about God blessing His people and us being blessed. And, you know, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed, you know, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, etc. Okay, so, so clearly God is about blessing us. But in this passage, what stands out to us is not Joseph being blessed, but Joseph being successful in blessing somebody else. Consummation of it, you abide me and I abide in you, so there must be yeah, yeah, yeah. success if you're yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so in my life, if I am experiencing the presence of God and we and I asked the question earlier, what does the presence of God look like in Joseph's life? Well, what does the presence of God look like in my life? What does the presence of God look like in your life? Well, if if you are responding rightly to the circumstances that God has placed you in, whatever those circumstances are, and even if those circumstances are circumstances that you would change in a moment if you could. And it's not wrong to feel that way. If those circumstances are circumstances you could change in a moment if you would, are you still living righteously and uprightly and faithfully in that situation. And if you are, one of the manifestations of the presence of God in your life is that those around you will be blessed. Because that is God's covenant promise. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And as descendants of Abraham by faith, that is our promise too.
So, so Joseph has this wonderful opportunity to be a vehicle of blessing. Remember clear back when we were talking about Abraham and studying Abraham, we were talking about Abraham being the blessing bearer. Abraham is the blessing bearer. You know, for those of us who were who are Lord of the Rings fanatics, you know, we talked about we talked about Frodo being the ring bearer, okay? Well, Abraham is the blessing bearer. He carries the blessing. And it and and the the thing that is significant and profound about being the blessing bearer is it's not always an easy job. For Joseph to be a blessing bearer to the household of Potiphar, he had to be a slave in Potiphar's house. And for Joseph to be a blessing bearer in prison, he had to be a prisoner. Now, we want to jump ahead and say, for Joseph to be a blessing bearer in Egypt, he had to be prime minister. And ultimately that will happen. But only after he's been a slave and a prisoner. Now, I don't know why God wanted to bless Potiphar. <laughs> but I think it's pretty cool he did. I don't know why God wanted to bless the people in that prison. But I think it's pretty cool he did. And I don't know why God wants to bless the people around you or around me who do not love Him or worship Him or cherish His name. But I'm glad He does. Now, the thing that strikes me about the distinction between Judah and Joseph is that Judah has the presence of God with him too because he's a descendant of Jacob. But Judah is not a blessing to those around him. Joseph is. Why is Joseph a blessing to those around him and Judah is not? Because the choices he's making. So, so what I'm suggesting in, in that is that the promise of the presence of God in our lives is not all there is to say about our lives. But if, it, if we are ultimately to be successful in the thing that God has determined that He wants us to be successful in, for us to be successful in that thing, we must walk uprightly and faithfully. And that's the choice that Joseph makes over and over and over again in his life. Is that he will be faithful and he will be upright even though he is in circumstances that are unjust and evil. And I honestly don't know where Joseph gets this. You know, I, I assume somehow he, when he was growing up under the loving care of his father that somehow his father inculcated some of this into him. Maybe also Rachel did before she died. But, but that in his childhood some of these values were inculcated into his life. But, that, but that's not enough. We all know children who've had plenty of training in righteousness who ultimately, when they reach adulthood, make wrong decisions or in their youth make wrong decisions about what they're going to do. So it wasn't just that Joseph was trained and cultivated in this character. And, and I wonder if that's true, why weren't the other ten boys also trained the same way. I, I don't know the answers to those questions. But, but, but there was something about Joseph, whether it was his training or whatever it was, there was something about Joseph that caused him to be faithful to make the right choices. Or maybe I shouldn't say it that way. Maybe I should just say Joseph made the right choices. 
Because ultimately, when it comes down to the choices we make in life, it's not about, you know, what other things in our life determine us. It's whether or not we make the right choices. But it's just that simple. And that's no more clearly demonstrated than in the garden. I mean, Adam and Eve had, had everything perfect. They could not have had anything better. It, the whole circumstance was better. And they had a perfect father. They had a perfect parent. Everything was perfect about their lives. And they made the wrong choice. And Joseph makes the right choices. Consistently, apparently. Now, there are going to be some points at which I'm going to quarrel with Joseph a little bit as we go through the story. But they aren't going to be major ones. I've already quarreled with him some, and you people didn't, some of you didn't agree with me. But, but, uh, but, but over and over and over again, this remarkable young man, who remember is probably only in his late teens or early 20s at this point, is making the right choices. And because he's making the right choices, he is exuding blessing on everybody around him. Well, then we come to this very ugly part of the story. Potiphar's wife. And uh, my goodness, there's been so much been said and written and taught about this whole scenario. And, you know, what more is there to think about this, this situation with Joseph and Potiphar's wife? It's been pointed out, of course. Well, before I get to that. So, here he is after a period of time. We don't know how long he served in Potiphar's house. We do know that it was 13 years from the time he arrived in Egypt until he was exalted uh, uh, to Pharaoh's right hand. So there was a 13-year period of time. We know that an absolute minimum he spent two years in prison, but it was probably significantly longer than that, four or five or six years that he spent in prison. So roughly, in my mind, although we can't be dogmatic about this, in my mind, I divide those 13 years up kind of in blocks of two, in a block of two blocks, uh, about half the time spent in Potiphar's house and about half the time spent in prison. We don't really know for sure. But, he's, but he spent... A number of years already in Potiphar's house. And this process of elevation and promotion has taken place over a period of time in Potiphar's house. Okay. And then he ends up in prison and he's in prison for a significant period of time. Uh, I assume probably four, five, six years that he's in prison. Okay. Well, so he's in Potiphar's house now for several years. He's been very successful. He's He's blessed all of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife has reaped the benefits of this. But over a period of time, the more she looks at Joseph, the more she wants him sexually. So it says that she looked on him with desire. And she says to him, lie with me. Now here is Joseph. He's late teens, early 20s. Probably early 20s by this point. He's a young man. He's virile. He's a virgin. He's a long way from home. Dad and mom are nowhere around. Nobody that knows him. Nobody, nobody who inculcated those values in his life is around to watch what he does what decision he makes at this point. Not only that, he's been dealt bum deal after bum deal after bum deal after bum deal in his life. It's about time he got a break. And now, Potiphar's wife says to him, lie with me. And most of us are pretty amazed that he doesn't do it, right? Uh, I mean, how many young men in those circumstances would have said, no, thank you? It's a pretty stunning thing that he said, no. How did he say no? What did he say? 
Okay, let me rephrase the question because you're jumping to the end. <laughs> let me rephrase the question. What are the three answers he gives as to why this would be wrong? Okay, he has an issue of trust. He has been entrusted with certain things. He's been entrusted with certain responsibilities. And this would be a violation of trust. This would be a... This, this would sacrifice his credibility, his integrity. And he says, I'm not going to do anything that would sacrifice my integrity and my credibility. Man, I tell you, I wish that we had more people like that. When I think of all the prominent politicians, leaders, even Christian leaders or so-called Christian politicians who have espoused family values and all those sorts of things, who have refused or failed to give this answer when confronted by the opportunity to commit immorality. If they would just simply say, listen, I have a trust. The people of God or the people of this country have, have put their trust in me and I have a credibility issue. And if I do this with you, I will sacrifice my credibility. But it's not just the credibility of great leaders. It's our credibility too, isn't it, as men and women. When we are confronted with these possibilities, what are the answers that we give when we're confronted with the temptation to sexual sin? One of the answers that we should give is, it's a, no, this is a credibility issue. If I do this, I lose my credibility. If I lose this, people no longer trust me. What's the second answer he gives? This is a little more oblique, a little not, not as easy to see, but I think it's in there. Seems like there's some loyalty in there. Yeah, loyalty. His loyalty to his master. Now, now this again is this again is exemplary of. Of, of Joseph's remarkable determination to be righteous in an unrighteous situation because he's being loyal to a man who is his master and he is a slave. Okay. But he feels a sense of loyalty to Potiphar. He owes Potiphar something. He owes Potiphar his loyalty. And he says, in addition to this being an issue of integrity, it's an issue of my loyalty to this man. And if I do this, I will have betrayed this man. And, and in our lives, when we are confronted by the opportunity of any sin, but in the context here we're talking about sexual sin, when I am confronted with the opportunity for sexual sin, one of the answers I ought to give is that there are people in my life whom I will be disloyal to if I do this. I will have betrayed my relationship with this person. And then the third answer he gives is what? It's a sin against God. <laughs> it's a sin against God. Why is it a sin against God? Okay, well, why is that a sin? Pardon? Okay. And quite simply, God says it's wrong. Right? God says this kind of a relationship is wrong. Because it does not comport with the nature and the character of God. This is not the way God is. And so if you do this, you are not living, you are not acting like God acts. And so it is a sin. It's not just a sin. He says it is a great evil. 
is a great evil, he said. So it is a sin because God has declared the marriage between one man and one woman who are to be mates together for life and be faithful and loyal to one another for life. And if you enter in and you have this relationship with her, you have violated that sacred bond. Notice that, that in Joseph's mind, these two unbelievers are married in the sight of God. I want you to notice that. Unbelievers married together are married in the sight of God. And if he violates this with these, this pagan couple, he has violated this bond that God has created. Why else is it sin? What happens to the whole dynamics in the household if he does this? Be sure your sin will find you. Yeah, yeah. What else? Yes. Okay. 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 Which goes back to that issue of his integrity, or yes. Uh But what happens to this whole thing of blessing? The blessing just goes out the window, doesn't it? How many good families and good homes that have known and experienced the blessing of God have been absolutely devastated because somebody has made the wrong choice in this situation? I mean, every one of us could tell numerous stories, couldn't we? Of families we know where a husband or a wife makes the wrong choice in these circumstances. And the consequences are devastating. So it is a sin, not only because it is a violation of that covenant marriage union that God has instituted and created. It's not only a sin for that reason, but it is a sin because Joseph ceases to be a blessing and instead becomes a curse. And what's instructive to me about that is that I now learn that being a blessing in the lives of others is not an option. I mean, it's not a it's not something I can rightly choose not to do. That when I choose to act in a way that forfeits my blessing in the life of others, I have sinned. So whether it's that I choose to go sleep with some other woman or whether I choose to live selfishly in some other way, when I choose, though I have God's presence with me, when I choose not to live uprightly and faithfully and to be a blessing in the life of others in any way, I have sinned. Because God's purpose for me is that I would be a blessing there. And so Joseph makes this courageous stand and he says no. How many times did he say no? Again and again and again and again. I find it remarkable that he resisted the first time. Now, have you, have you ever had an opportunity to sin that got past you? Maybe I'm prying a little too close here. <clears throat> have you ever had a temptation in your life to do something that you knew wasn't right? And just by the grace of God, somehow you didn't do it and it got by you. And, and, and so here you are now a day or two late, days later, or a week or a month later, and you go... 
Oh, I wish I'd done that. I've been there. I've been there. And what strikes me here about Joseph is that God leaves him in this situation so that the temptation is not just once, but it's again and again and again and again and again, day after day. So how does Joseph deal with this? Well, you wonder why he didn't go talk to the master, but being in that situation, I don't think he probably could. Yeah, I don't think he could have. What did he do? He did not eat her to lie to her. Okay. He didn't listen to her to lie with her, but notice the second thing it says, or to be with her. So what we see Joseph did do in his life is he took every precaution he could to keep, if at all possible, from being in a compromising situation. Now, how how often have you and I sinned because we've been willing to get as close to sin as possible without doing it? But Joseph determines he's going to put distance between himself and the temptation. Now, that's not always completely possible. And we'll see in the life of Joseph, it wasn't always completely possible, which leads to the next situation. Okay. But Joseph's way of dealing with this daily temptation is, okay, I can't retire. I can't resign and go work for somebody else. I can't get out. But I can, as diligent as I am, as diligent as I can be, I can be careful to put as much distance as I can between myself and the source of temptation. And that's what he does. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. So that's where we'll pick it up next week.